welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On this episode of Why Make, we resume our conversation with Melanie Fallick, an independent writer, editor, creative consultant, and lifelong maker who lives in the Hudson Valley in New York. We continue talking about the creation of her book, Making a Life, Working by Hand and Discovering the Life You Were Meant to Live, and also find out more about her work on a new book tentatively titled The Maker's Way. Melanie enjoys learning by challenging herself with new things and shares with us the struggle she experienced taking a woodworking class with Peter Korn and allowing herself to be present in a clay workshop with Simon Leach. So join us as we dig into the idea of compassionate capitalism, the history of the do-it-yourself movement, making for self-care and wellness, and how making can bring about happiness. Please enjoy the second part of our enriching Why Make conversation with Melanie Fallick. So just to backtrack a second in terms of thinking about the, you know, the historical arc you were talking about, where does the uh, DIY do-it-yourself movement fit in? Because I'm kind of confused about how it fits in and even defining the do-it-yourself movement, but it's definitely a factor of what's going on today. People are sharing how to make things on YouTubes and largely unschooled, largely unknowledgeable is it the is it is the do-it-yourself movement part of the next naive making movement i don't know i'm really confused how it fits in historically and where it's going and i'm going to interject really quick with a quote from your book before you answer um, melanie so you say the diy renaissance is a renewal of attention paid to the value of handwork as well as a concern about how what we consume is affecting our health and the environment. And you kind of alluded to that before, but then to, to define it in the terms that Eric is. Um... Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people today, as a result, I think of the sort of digital revolution and the information age, you know, they spend a lot of time in their heads. They spend a lot of time on their screens. Often people say like, there's nothing tangible at the end of the day. Um, there's not like a, a physical object. And so they choose to, let's say, you know, go to a workshop, a weekend workshop in spoon carving or, um, you know, hand building pottery or block printing or whatever, because they long for that connection, not to that numbing keypad or screen, but to real material, I, you know, sometimes I say like, you know, playing in the mud, like getting their hands dirty, finger painting, like the things we are naturally drawn to as children and that are sort of celebrated in children and then gradually sort of we're, we're, it's all sort of taken away from us or we're told we need to get serious and study and like do things in our heads and on our computers. And so I think that the, the DIY renaissance is a reaction 
to that, to the high tech world, you know, a sort of a pendulum swinging back to the low tech, which is, I think that the impulse to be creative, to use our hands, to get our hands dirty comes to us through our DNA. And if you think about, you know, the hundred thousands, hundreds of thousands of years before the industrial revolution, it makes sense that that's still in our DNA because the time since then is so short relative to the time before the industrial revolution. When you're talking about like the numbing feeling of hitting that screen, you ever get to a point where, well, and this happens to me too, where like you hit it and nothing happens and you just keep on doing it. That's what it reminds me of. It's like how, how futile it is to use these things sometimes. Yeah. And it's like, I know that Steve Jobs designed it so that when you touched it, it was a soft touch and something happened. Right. But to touch it and like nothing happens, that just reminds me of, of society. It, it reminds me of something a little bit different, but like this idea mm -hmm. that our society feeds us that rather than being makers, we, we are now consumers. Yeah. And we are consumers of stuff. We are consumers mm -hmm. of information. And if you're unhappy, consume more. Yeah. And it, and it, and it, <laughs> it actually encourages the feeding, that consumption. Yeah. And the, and all of that separates us from our true selves. Yeah. Well, what, and we look outward instead of inward. One of the really interesting things you're, you're talking about, like looking back hundreds of thousands of years and I'm almost envisioning like our, our canvas has changed. Like, I guess the way that we express ourselves. And now that canvas is almost literally consumerism for a lot of people. Yes. And through our phones and right before the industrial revolution started, before those machines were available, the canvas was way different. Yeah. It's like maybe you pressed wildflowers or I, I don't know, I, you know, cause I'm a, a, just the idea of changing it from imperative to choice yeah before and then after the industrial revolution as technology increased it's like before you know before it's like we would have to go out and make a rake and you know figure out how to make our house and like collectively or individually depending on how people were living and then all of a sudden it becomes kind of like everything's easy and if we want to express ourselves we have a choice to do it yeah and i think the message is to keep consuming even mm -hmm. though and the algorithms are set up to compel us to do that but and that it goes back to this idea of you know you're saying like with your phone like you just keep on tapping on it even though it's not delivering yeah, nothing's and happening why, why doesn't it connect where's my wi-fi <laughs> we keep on spending money or acquiring things yeah but those are all band-aids mm -hmm. that are not treating the wound underneath which is this disconnection from a feeling of worth and competency and imagination. Well, so let's really open up Pandora's box here because, uh, <laughs> and really get into a controversial subject, which is arts and craft and fine art and art and making. Because I think there's, I think there's a disconnect between craft and art that I don't understand because I view every, I view all creativity as art. And whenever you put that thing called creativity in motion, it's art. And the world really wants to create two separate worlds. One world is craft and one world is art, where I think it's 
art and craft are a, a circular thing, completely, you know, continually feeding on itself. Yet somehow we have to define craft as something other than art. What, what are your thoughts on that? I like the idea of it being circular. I feel no need to define things as craft as, or art. I feel like that distinction has come about, you know, as a way to create a hierarchy. Um, it's sort of capitalism, you know, to have certain things have more value. And what we consider fine art or what we have considered fine art traditionally is stuff that generally white men do or did. And they determined that, or they, they were, the, you know, in power, domestic things, which primarily women did, were undervalued or still undervalued. Things that non-white people did were undervalued and called so-called craft. So I feel like the whole conversation makes little sense. I mean, I feel like, you know, if I sort of avoid the words art and craft because of this problem with, you know, how people interpret them. But I would be perfectly, I'm okay calling it all art. Um, and I think, you know, there may be certain people's work that others want to celebrate or pay money for, and that's great for them. But I feel like we as individuals will gain when we all just practice our creativity and, and sort of forget about those distinctions. Yeah, I, I, w I would concur. Yeah. I only brought it up to, uh, to, well, it's almost like, <laughs> to stir discussion. <laughs> well, it's almost like, I think the choice of, um, the title for your book, Making a Life, you're not like crafting a life or, or arting a life. It's like making is almost like this perfect balance word that just, it kind of covers it, you know, cause. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's pretty neutral. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people, in terms of the people that I included in the book, you know, of course I appreciate all of their work, but I wasn't as interested in, you know, what they were making as I was in why they were making when I was, you know, sort of deciding who, who to feature. Because I wasn't looking for like, these are the best makers. You know, I, I have a friend and um, I remember one day she said to me, oh, you know, like, I used to do beading and, you know, I was thinking I would do it again, but I don't know if I should. I'm not very good at it. And I said, well, do you enjoy it? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, then do it. You know, like, why does, if we only do things we're good at, we sort of m miss a lot of chance for discovery and imagination. And I realized that, you know, when we're kids, we're not good at you know, we, we have to learn everything. And so I don't think there's as much very young children, you know, there, there isn't as much judgment on like what's good and what's not good. Just participating is good. And then it's like, oh, you're, oh, you know, Stevie, you're really good at drawing or, you know, and my son was literally told that he was not a good artist when he was very, very little, like by the art teacher, <laughs> which is insane. But I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is like the, the instinct to create is natural and healthy. And when, when we do, we are, as we grow older, um, you know, tend to do more things that we're really good at. And then we avoid things that we're not good at. And that's kind of a shame. And I have to say, like, you guys are both woodworkers and, 
you know, you talked about Peter Korn and the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship in Maine. And that was, I spent two weeks there and that was one of the hardest things that I've ever done emotionally because I had no prior experience in woodworking. I had no understanding of hand tools. I didn't, the first day we were like working on the bevel of our chisels. I had no idea why. Um, <laughs> like I couldn't understand anything. So you could say I was really bad at it. And I, you know, I, at one point I felt the tears coming and I went into the bathroom and I knew Peter saw me and I just thought, oh God, please don't talk to me, you know, when I come out of the bathroom. But of course that he did. And of course I cried more and, you know, and, and a bunch of people said, you know, you don't have to do this because, you know, I was struggling so much. And I, I was there to learn about that school, to learn about Peter and his ideas and to witness woodworking and also to put myself in an uncomfortable position and just be present and allow myself to be uncomfortable. And I think that was one of like a real, one of the most valuable experiences. And it has reverberated out in so many ways in my life of just sitting in the discomfort and being patient with myself and just not expecting that I should be good at something quickly. I mean, it, it, it took a lot within you to overcome that fear. I mean, I, when I went to woodworking school at Haywood and it, it, Eric and I actually went to the same woodworking schools. Um, I started in 2004 and up until then I had only used a circular saw. I'd never actually gotten on the deck of a table saw and used one. And I was scared out of my gourd mm -hmm. <laughs> and it took me a few weeks to figure stuff out. And I had a good guide mm -hmm. and some good people around me and yeah. How did that feel emotionally for you? It was scary. I did everything really slow, <laughs> like learning how to sharpen chisels. And, you know, I had, I had done woodworking before. I'd done some wood turning and stuff, but I had never actually used a, a real table saw or a joiner or a planer or any of that stuff. I had just dabbled around. I called myself a backyard wood, woodworker before I did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I made plenty of, uh, you know, skate ramps and all this stuff, but never used the big machines. And man, I was terrified. Mm -hmm. But I was like, you know what? There's something in me that says that I have to do this and I want to figure it out. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, we can do hard things. And I think. Yeah, we can. You you were talking, um, Melanie, about, you know, being older and not being challenged to do stuff or even being, um, you know, people feeling that older people should learn new things. I heard a story a couple months ago about an, a man in his mid eighties that decided to learn cello mm -hmm. to, to learn how to play cello from not knowing anything about stringed instruments. Wow. And it took him a couple of years and he got it and he's playing what he feels is he's met his goal. He, you know, he, I don't know what he's playing, maybe Beethoven or Stravinsky or something, but he's trying Yeah, and he's doing it. Whether or not it sounds good to anybody else but him, but he's taking the lessons and taking the the initiative. He rented a cello or bought a cello, and he's he's doing it in his eighties. Yeah, and I was like, that's that's beautiful, absolutely beautiful yeah. inspiration. And, and you know, I would put it as you uh, know, in, in a much more I, my frame of reference is is that I am a half-assed musician, but I play with a lot of players that are much better than me. And 
I have a willingness to go out there and suck. It's uh, <laughs> because you love playing. I love playing. I absolutely love it. I will improvise over something I've never heard before and go, well, that was really bad. And that's an emotional growth thing because it used to be I was terrified of that. Yeah. It used to be that literally I, I'd try it and I'd be in tears or I wouldn't try it and I would be in tears right. <laughs> because I was so afraid of other people's judgments. And ultimately, age helps. <laughs> you reach a certain point and you go, well, other people's judgments really don't mean a thing. I, I have to be willing to just do it. Yeah, and I think you also learn that People aren't really paying that much attention to you. They're busy with their own stuff. <laughs> They've got their head somewhere else. <laughs> They're not thinking about you. Right. Yeah, but it's tricky. It's tricky. I mean, I've really struggled with that in my life of, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of spending two weeks and really challenging yourself at, uh, at uh, the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship, what role should should a formalized education have in making should i mean obviously you told a horror story of a, of an art teacher really crossing the line and telling your son he couldn't do art which is i mean that teacher should have that was horrid yeah i mean that should never happen yeah. <laughs> but i mean you know maybe every high schooler should learn to knit i, I don't know i i think to me, making has some role in our formalized education system. I'm not quite sure what it is or what it would look like, but I mean, well, what do you think about that? I definitely, I mean, if you think of handwork as a pathway to wellness, like, you know, eating healthy food and um, exercising, and, it, and I would say that that is something that you hope is taught at home, but certainly should be taught and reinforced in school. So if you think about that, then I think handwork fits into to a curriculum. If you're training people to make money, which seems to be the direction our educational system, you know, has gone in recent, recent decades, then you could have an argument against it. But I don't think that's what, you know, our education system should be about. Certainly, you know, K through 12. I feel like the problem arrives when we're focused on the finished product as the goal, as opposed to all you learn along the way. So absolutely, I want handwork to be part of the curriculum. I think, you know, and I feel like it's really creative expression. And I think there's real value when the hands are involved in um, more than just tapping. Um, but, you know, for... But there's also, you know, some people are playing musical instruments, some people are doing theater, some people are doing dance. I would say for me, um, an embodied experience, the more embodied the experience is, um, I think it's really good when the, it's an embodied experience. I think. So almost like the journey is the destination. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I've been doing pottery and, um, the, the cylinder is kind of like this rite of passage. I don't know if you guys do pottery, but like. My mom, my mom is a potter. Yeah. She's been doing it for my whole life. I was born into mm -hmm. it. I, I mean, ironic that I'm not a potter and my wife is a, is a clay artist. Well, you know, when I first started, I learned how to center. I learned how to, you know, do all the steps and my cylinders were inconsistent. And, you know, the teacher said, oh, you should make like a thousand cylinders and use the mm -hmm. same amount of clay. And, you know, I got to like 
I didn't make a thousand and yeah, they were kind of inconsistent, <laughs> but I really wanted cereal bowls and I knew enough to make cereal bowls. And, you know, I started delving into other things. And, and then I recently, just a couple of weeks ago, took a workshop with Simon Leach. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really? That's cool. <laughs> and uh, it was a weekend workshop. It was wonderful. And we spent the whole weekend with a 12 ounce ball of clay to make a five inch cylinder with a three inch mm -hmm. diameter. And, um, you know, I tried and tried and tried and learned a lot from his technique. So I kind of like took a step back and said, I really need these fundamentals. And then I went to my home pottery studio, you know, where I'm a member, like, and like two days in a row, just like trying and, you know, I was not reaching five inches. Some of my balls, I was like, no, I'm just going to use a pound, but I still wasn't getting the five inches. And mm -hmm. And every one of them, like a lot of them were flopping and even the ones that didn't, I just threw in the recycle pile. And um, I, I really, like I haven't figured it out, like why I'm doing this. I feel like I have this love-hate relationship with it because I just feel compelled to keep trying. And it feels so freeing to throw the pots in the recycle pile, like to just let go of the idea that this work is going to be made in is going to be fired and made into a thing and that like yes one day hopefully before too long i will start firing things again but there's something you know that's like zen throwing you know <laughs> like i just keep on doing it and doing it and doing it um and i'm i'm not sure why like i think is it the idea like i can do hard things i can I can stick with it. I can persevere. I can do it when it's not actually that fun. Well, I, I, my contention has always been that making's a disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uncurable. I mean, you, you do it because you're compelled to do it. Yeah. So maybe you're going through a rough patch right now. Well, I don't even know if it's rough. Like it's just, it could just be part of the, the course of your learning yeah you know and it's the course of your disease i would never ever ever call it a disease ever i you know as i've said multiple times in this conversation i see it as a pathway to wellness i feel it bugs me when people some people talk about they're making as therapy and that even bothers me because i think there's a suggestion as that there's something wrong that you're curing something and i feel like what you're doing is um more of a meditation maybe it's a meditation. It's like you're bringing positivity, you're bringing mm -hmm. learning, you're bringing expression, like everything about it or almost everything about it is so positive and disease feels negative to me in my personal vocabulary. And even though I understand what you're saying, I totally get it because there's that compulsion, like to just keep going and going and going. I just worry like because I wanted this to become part of like our formal educational system, I want this to be I feel like this is a way to sort of heal our world. I wanna use language that's very positive. Okay. Well maybe I'll think of another word. <laughs> it could be a cure to the disease. Yes, it is a cure. I mean I totally understand what you're saying, so I'm not criticizing it, I'm just saying it's like not Well and and, and that speaks truth to just the fact that we all have, we all see the world differently. We, our creative journey is a different arc for everyone, mm -hmm. you know? So finding a commonality is, it, it, it's a hard thing to do, but having a commonality will help us all kind of, you know, be able to come together and 
and experience that from our different perspectives. Right. And you could even think about it in terms of like the making, the impulse to make brings us together with people that maybe have different vocabularies or different yeah. ideas or different political beliefs or different backgrounds. But yet we find each other through this shared passion and we can begin to communicate and learn and understand one another in ways that we might not if we don't come together because of this commonality. And that really brings up an important point for me. We did a, a month or so ago, uh, we did an incredible conversation with Zeke Leonard, who teaches up at Syracuse University. Um, he is an instrument maker and a maker of many different kinds of objects, but he believes that really the most important function of making, especially making functional objects, is community. And especially for music, he makes musical instruments to put in people's hands to play music. And the and that is a process of creating community, mm -hmm. just like you said. And I, I think making is a community. And that might be, you know, I mean, when you talk about the why and why make or, or you know, uh, maybe that is an important why. Absolutely. I mean, creating community. I mean, chapter three, joining hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Zeke is making a ukulele for me right now. I ordered one from him. Wow. And and it's it's really amazing. And I I know he doesn't mind me talking about this, but I was ready to order him one from him because I saw what he did. He makes them out of salvaged pianos, old twenties, teens and twenties pianos. And wow. I was getting ready for like a ridiculous price tag. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not gonna say how much, but the amount that he's charging for him is unreasonably low because he wants to put them in people's hands so people can play. People that would otherwise not be able to afford an instrument or have something of that quality, he's making it possible. And now, Rob, hmm. you have to join a ukulele orchestra. I, you have yeah, to. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll be the first. <laughs> you have to bring the circle around. I'll be, by, I'll be uh, one of the first to play Black Sabbath on a ukulele. <laughs> Well, not the first, but I'm sure <laughs> with with ten other the Black people. Sabbath ukulele orchestra. No, I don't know. Yeah. So, but it's yeah. really interesting how he is he's enabling people to play. He's like, if I sold them at a high price, I'd sell two a year. But mm -hmm. the price I sell them now, I'm can you know I can make a dozen a year and put in people's hands. Well, and you know that sort of goes back to you know a point we just briefly touched on, which is capitalism and. Mm -hmm you know, the way it's yeah. set up for continual growth or the way mm -hmm. we practice this country, it seems to be practiced where you have to like grow, grow, grow more, more, more. And, you know, I like to think that we can have kind of compassionate capitalism or kind of um, a circular one where, mm -hmm. you know, we have enough and we sh sort of it, everything is kind of sustainable and recyclable. So we don't just like get more, 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 but we make the world better for everyone and so what this man is doing zeke or zeke zeke, you zeke yeah zeke, zeke Leonard, yeah, yeah is such a wonderful example of that yeah. that he's obviously or it seems from what you're saying he's charging enough to sustain the life that he wants to live and then he's and he's also using repurposing material so he's not sort of creating waste yeah. or you know environmental more environmental damage and then he's sharing that with other people in order for, to bring more music 
into their lives and um and then hopefully those people you know will share what they've learned both perhaps via what they play or perhaps by teaching others or whatever but it just you know we can flourish that way by going around and around yeah it's circular like eric was saying too yeah right so um we're at an hour almost an hour and a half but there's a couple other topics i'd like to hit and actually importantly we haven't hit it yet is that connection both historically and moving forward between women and making yeah um well i think it was you know women in the domestic space like creating meals making clothing um harvesting vegetables from the fields you know all the things that women did to sort of support their families to create a feeling of family and home and all the warmth that we hope goes with that ideally goes with that um have been undervalued compared to what men traditionally did outside of the home to sort of bring home money i mean let's you know never considering that they were getting like somebody you know like maid service and um <laughs> chef services and childcare without paying for it so there's you know to me there's so much that it's it's hard to talk about because you know what what we consider male and female and man and woman is shifting so much right now you know the you know one of you was saying something about sewing anyway the impulse to sort of make things like it's been so gendered so like if a boy yeah. knit that was weird or whatever and it does seem like men and male and female like there are certain people that are attracted to kind of like hard things like wood and metal and that tends to be more men and there are people who are attracted to sort of softer things like cloth which is generally more women and then pottery is like right there in the middle where that's the one where you get both but that is all you know how much of that comes from just our cultural programming i don't really know i think a lot of it does you know a lot of it's gendered and a lot of it's just based on what's the expectations that are laid out in front of us when we're growing up yeah right yeah and and actually we've we've addressed the well we haven't addressed it we've discussed this in two episodes um there's a wonderful artist uh, named ba harrington no idea off my top of my head what episode that was. Do you know, Rob? Oh, in the teens, like 18 or 19. I'm not exactly sure. Right. And she recently did an exhibition last year at the Center for Craft in Asheville, just exploring what's classically considered women's furniture <laughs> and the cultural heritage of that. And fascinating show, fascinating person. And then in terms of talking about the journey, Maggie Sasso, a wonderful maker, um actually started as a woodworker and ended up as a fiber artist mm. yeah i mean i think that our culture has appreciated um or you'd say like if you look at the history books what i remember learning in history most was um about war yeah yeah and economics yep business and war that's about it and then there would be like a little sidebar about, you know, Betsy Ross and stitching the flag, which I guess is controversial now because they're saying maybe she didn't stitch it. But in any case, or there might be like a little thing about, you know, the women spinning their own fiber as a way not to support British cloth, you know, not to have to buy British cloth. Um, very, very slowly, too slowly, things are seem to be maybe changing, although you know, 
we're still having questions about women's autonomy over their own bodies, which is scary um, to me. Fantastically scary to, I mean, to a lot of us. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's wild seeing everything change, like something that's been in place for fifty years all of a sudden changed two months ago. I know. It's like, I know, and but you know, so when I'm talking about like maybe there's more appreciation for what women contribute. Um, or it seems like in some ways there is, I mean, I would like to get to the point where, you know, art craft making is all a circle, you know, that it's not a hierarchy. It's not like we, we honor and celebrate this, but not that, or this is better and this is worse or what men do gets more attention than what women do. Right. And obviously sort of, you know, as you pointed out before, what's really underwriting all of this is the fact of the the vicious circle of white men and capitalism which is really sort of driving our uh, seems of driving our priorities but moving on cuz um on, you know starting to wrap up on a hopeful note yes on a very hopeful note i mean i think you've addressed the question that you know making is really a part of a of a of self-care and wellness Yes. And, um, you know, I, I guess the two big questions are, can making bring happiness? And I think you've addressed that, unless you'd like to say more on it. But, you know, what brought us together was our mutual friend, Tommy Simpson. And I think of, you know, a quote Tommy said, although not verbatim, which is making is a great way to discover yourself. Yeah, I yeah, I, I agree. I, making has the potential to create happiness and certainly it has for me and maybe related to that. And perhaps more importantly, I think wellness, feeling good, feeling comfortable in my skin, feeling clear about what my values are and feeling able to, to sort of attempt to live in keeping with them in a conscious way. You know, so I guess that for me, it has been a, like Tommy says, a, pathway to self-discovery another thing that he has talked about and maybe you remember it more clearly than I do but about you know self-worth and it's a way of developing a feeling of self-worth when you're creating learning how to create yourself with your ideas and your hands and perhaps other tools and that when people feel self-worth they are less likely to want to hurt one another I, I think that's the perfect uplifting note to, to end it on, unless you have another thought, Rob. Uh, yeah, real quick, just to add to that, Tommy also says that it could be cooking. It could be any any form of self-expression. Yes. And I thought I thought that was a beautiful way for him to like to open it up yes. to, to anyone. Like you don't have to be an artist. You can, anybody can express themselves and and be creative. Right. Absolutely. And and discover yourself and 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 happiness. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that's funny to me or interesting that I had, you know, I we, you started out and asked me about my upbringing, and I said in my family, like making things was just ordinary part of being a human being, um, and having interests, and you know, the way that I became friends with Tommy was because my father bought some of his work in the early seventies. Mm -hmm. And um, now my brother and I have that work. And so I reached out to Tommy to kind of just ask him about the pieces. So in a way, like, you know, I went through this whole journey, this whole life and, you know, sort of like 
Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, you know, like, like <laughs> the answer was always kind of within me. <laughs> well, well, it's almost like you found the extraordinary in the ordinary. Yeah. And I, I sort of had to go, go out in the world to do all this exploring and, and valuable exploring. I'm not saying, oh, the answer was always there right at my fingertips, but that their answer was there, but you, you'd sort of live your life to, to find yourself. And the, the answer is within you. It's not outside of you. Although we are constantly told to look out of our side of ourselves. Like, yeah. you know, now we have a question, like Google it, like, <laughs> you know, like ask the Google. That's what my husband and I say. Find the answer in 10 seconds. Yeah. Sometimes it's so easy to miss the stuff that's like right in front of your face. Or you have to sort of try something completely different yeah. in order to appreciate what is right in front of your face. Yeah. And um, I think that is a great place to wrap it up. So we'd like to thank uh, Melanie Fallick for being on the Why Make podcast, uh, the author of Making a Life, which do you want to briefly plug in it? Where can Making a Life be found? So it's Making a Life, Working by Hand and Discovering the Life You're Meant to Live. I think the subtitle tells people a lot about what it is, so I'll say that. And you can get it wherever books are sold. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, then, thank you, Melanie. And why make? Why make? Why make? We would like to thank our Patreon donors, including our thank you maker, Kristen Damholt, our t-shirt makers, Chris Bowman, Alex Zorn, Maggie Sasso-Jones, Allison True, Ryan Hills, Jason Snyder, and Johanna Zorn. Our question maker, Rick Schwartz, and our sustaining makers, Mark Del Judas and Cliff Whitehouse. And we are excited to tell you about Fractured Atlas, our nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which makes all of your donations to YMake tax deductible. Please go to fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash y dash make dash project to support why make and as always thank you very much for your support you can listen to why make on stitcher apple Podcasts, and can also grab our rss feed or direct download from our website why hyphen make.com you can also find us on instagram and twitter at at why make pod this episode is recorded on squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.